Take your Bible and make your way to Ephesians chapter 4. We're going to continue in our mini-series on the church, who we are and what we are all about. Who we are and what we're all about, part 2 from Ephesians chapter 4. Last week, we examined our identity as a church. We talked about who we are in the who we are and what we're all about. This week, we'll actually get to the first of who, uh, what we're all about as a church family. Our identity is ancient. We found it in Ephesians chapter 2. We are a gathering of God's people founded upon the Son of God's work for us. We're grounded upon the Word of God given to us in the New Testament. We gather together to worship God. We are the people of God founded upon the Word of God unified around the Son of God. And that identity has been unchanging for the church from the foundation of the church at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 all the way until present day, even here at this local expression of the church, Grace Church of the Valley. And that identity has everything to do with our priorities, our vision, our goals, our focus. And that brings us to the second half of this series title, Who We Are and What We're All About. Those two are directly connected to each other. What are we all about? Well, our understanding of our biblical identity leads us to our biblical priority. Our understanding of our biblical identity as a church family leads us to our biblical priorities as a church family. So there's, once again, if you came hopeful for creativity and for um, new strategies and new ideas, I am warning you now, you will not find them. These are ancient strategies, ancient ideals, because they are connected to our definition that's been given by our head and recorded and preserved for us on the pages of our New Testaments. Okay? Let's turn to the Word. Let's read it together, and I think it'll become obvious where we're going to study this morning. Let's read Ephesians chapter 4, and let's read the first 16 verses together. We won't study all of these. In fact, we're only going to study the first paragraph, but let's read them all. It sets the context for us and helps us. Paul's just finished recording his prayers for the Ephesian believers at the end of chapter 3 and drawing upon those prayers for their deepening understanding and love of Christ, he says this in verse number 1, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body, one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he, has, and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean that he also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he, this same one, that is Christ, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we attain, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, 
to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working property, properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Now we're going to spend the next two weeks in this particular section of Ephesians chapter 4, and the final week we'll branch off and go into the, the, the last section of Ephesians, into the fifth chapter, and look further at our life together as a body of believers. But here in chapter 4, we have the heading of unity and we have what we are all about. Very simply, we are all about unity at Grace Church of the Valley. As a church identified and given our identity by Christ, we are therefore all about unity. Sadly, that is not a common experience in the church of our Lord Jesus Christ. Many churches are marked by disunity and by discord more than they are marked by unity and harmony within the body. But we who have been identified in Ephesians chapter 2 verses 19 to 22 as the people of God founded upon the New Testament word of God unified around the son of God must be marked by unity. So here's the the main concept, the big idea, if you will, from this first section of Ephesians chapter 4. And in particular this morning, we're going to look at the first six verses. I believe that they will make plain to us that Christian unity, the Christian unity of the church is unavoidably connected to the quality of the people and the clarity of the doctrine in the church. Let me say that again. The Christian unity of the church is unavoidably connected to the quality of the people and the clarity of the doctrine in the church. In other words, there is no Christian unity in Christ's church apart from a certain kind of people rallying around a certain set of doctrinal truths. The quality of the people, the clarity of the doctrine is the basis for unity within the body of Christ. If Grace Church of the Valley as one local expression of the body of Christ is to be marked by unity, it will be because of the people who make up Grace Church of the Valley and the clarity of the doctrine that is present in Grace Church of the Valley, in the people. In Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 6, we find those two qualities distinguished, and I think they'll become quite evident to you this morning. Quality number one. Unity at Grace Church is a moral issue. It's a moral issue. So, Christian unity must be marked out by the people involved and the doctrine that they believe. That is what distinguishes Christian unity from any other form of unity that we might see in our human existence. And firstly, we see that unity at Grace Church is a moral issue. Let's read verses 1 through 3 again. And notice the morality of unity within the body of Christ. We are all about unity at grace. And that's a moral issue. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, 
urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another. And here is the urging, eager, verse 3, to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. You say, now, what do you mean by unity being a moral issue? Well, for most, when you talk about engendering unity or bolstering unity or cultivating unity within the body of Christ, most think quickly of a strategy. There's got to be ways that we can generate unity within the body. There's got to be a program we could do that would make unity happen within Grace Church's family. But what we find in verse number 1, 2, and 3 is that unity begins on the inside. It's not a program. It's not a strategy. It's an internal moral condition of the people involved that generates unity. There's something on the inside that is the, the, the driving force behind the miracle, really, of Christian unity. And we find it here outlined for us in verses 1 through 3. Paul starts out this chapter the same way he started out chapter 3. Declaring with a very definitive, I, a prisoner for the Lord. Paul is marking himself as an apostle because he is about to give a command. He is about to urge the believers at Ephesus to live a certain way. And he bases that upon those first words. I, therefore, based on my prayer for you and based on my hope for you in Christ, I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord. Paul considered his suffering to be for Christ, not just because of Christ, but also for Christ. And here's Paul's urging. He urges them to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which they have been called. So unity begins with this moral condition. It's a heart issue. Begins with a command to walk in a manner that is worthy of our calling. This is so familiar to us. Even an un, untrained New Testament reader could understand and grasp quickly that Paul loved one metaphor above all others when he talked about the Christian life. And that was walking. Life. Paul used walking to reference life. Let me show you this. If this is news to you. Um, we find in verse number two of chapter five, therefore be imitators of God in verse one as beloved children and walk in love. Uh, there's not literally a love walk that you can do. This is a metaphor for your life. Walk in love because of what God has done for you. You respond likewise with your walk, with your life. Verse seven, therefore, do not become partners with them. That is with the disobedient ones. For at one time you were you were darkness but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. So the transformation has taken place. Therefore, Paul says, walk differently. 5.15, flip the page over. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. The old King James was circumspectly. Remember that as a scripture memory verse. Look carefully how you walk. Flip over a few pages to Colossians, Paul's, Paul's complimentary letter to the Colossian believers. Many similarities here, but in Colossians chapter 1, verse 10, we see him say, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. In this case, there is a walking that fits the Lord, fully pleasing to him. 
he says in verse number 10, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Colossians chapter 2 and verse 6, therefore, as you received Christ Jesus, the Lord, so walk in him rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving, walking uniquely because of the work that Christ has done. This is Paul's picture for the Christian life. And he begins this section dealing with the unity within the church as a key part of the church's life together, calling the church to walk in a manner, in a lifestyle that is worthy of the gospel. When he talks about the calling to which you have been called, he's speaking of the transformation that he's already referenced in chapter 1 and in chapter 2. You remember those contrasts? Light and darkness, death and life, slavery, freedom. These are contrasts. Things have changed. But God being rich in mercy, chapter 2, verse 4. Everything has been altered, and that is referenced as the calling of God. In fact, we just read about this from Paul's theology in Romans chapter 8. He's talking about the gospel effects on the life of these Christians at Ephesus. And indirectly, he's speaking to us at Grace Church of the Valley. The, the membership that makes up Grace Church of the Valley, the Christians who are gathered here as the people of God, founded upon the New Testament, Word of God, unified around the Son of God, must live their lives in a manner that matches the gospel. And that lifestyle is marked by unity. Now, there are a lot of things that we might think he would talk about as he discusses a life that is worthy of our calling. But his focus here in Ephesians chapter 4 is on the moral nature, the internal nature of the pursuit of unity within the body of Christ. And that's seen in verse number 3. He describes this manner that is worthy of the gospel in verses 2 and 3, really culminating in the eagerness to maintain unity in the spirit, the bond of peace. But he begins with kind of a grocery list of descriptors for unity. What is it that is necessary? What is the recipe for unity? What are the internal qualities that will mark the people who are engaged in the church as unified? And here we find them. They're nothing short of shocking. And they're also nothing short of familiar to us as God's people. Because these are the qualities that marked our Savior perfectly. Notice them then in verse number two with all humility and gentleness or meekness, your translation might say, with patience, bearing with one another in love. Ultimately, then eager to maintain unity in the bond of peace. So what is it that makes up the moral nature of unity at Grace Church of the Valley? It's the people who are Grace Church of the Valley, living humbly, gently, and patient, loving lives with one another. That's, that's what makes peace happen. Say, so what's the strategy for unity at Grace Church of the Valley? New hearts. Transformation from God in the lives of sinners who then are marked by the character qualities of their Savior. Most notably, humility, gentleness, and patience in love. And when 
Those are active in the hearts of God's people who are gathered together. Grace Church is a unified place. Because Christian unity, Christian unity is inextricably connected to the quality of the people involved and the clarity of the doctrine that they believe. So let's begin this list and we'll just spend a few moments looking at each one of these. Humility. Obviously, the greatest enemy of unity is pride. And that's why Paul begins with humility. Each and every dispute, each and every conflict, each and every division of the church family is drawn back and can be connected to pride. If it is sinful disunity, it is back to pride. James chapter 4. James, again, comes to bear on our time together this morning. James chapter 4. James is in Jerusalem. The church family from the first church at Jerusalem have been scattered out by the dispersion. They've been scattered because of persecution. And James writes to them basically a sermon in written form. Sends it out and it scatters out with all of the different people from the church. And he says in chapter 4, beginning in verse number 1, that he has heard that their lifestyle as a church family scattered out has been marked by conflict, by disunity. And he, he asked the question, why is it that you have conflict in your church family? And he answers the question, as any good shepherd would do. He asks and then he answers. He asks. He doesn't wait to hear. He says, it's because you have warring passions within you. You have warring lusts. Your pride wants to have its way so badly that you'll sin to get what you want and you'll sin if you don't get what you want. And therefore you have conflict. So Paul attacks this same heart condition when he speaks of unity here. He says humility must mark the church that is eagerly pursuing the unity of the spirit. Gentleness is meekness. That is power under control. Sensitivity to others and their condition. Restraint. The absence of self-rights and entitlement. I mean, Our culture, brothers and sisters, feeds pride. Everything in our culture says you will never succeed as a human being unless you think very highly of yourself. And your gospel says you will never know eternal joys unless you come spiritually bankrupt to Christ. So you have opposite messages. Your New Testament says that unity only takes place when there's gentleness and meekness between one another within the church family. Your world says that the only way you'll ever succeed as a human being is to go for number one, to live for your own agenda, to put your thumb on the weak ones, to throw them out of the way, and to accomplish your task with your agenda. Paul says there will be no unity unless the internal transformation of the gospel produces humility and gentleness amongst the body. That is, I do not live within the body for my rights, for my own cause. I'm sensitive to those around me, and I operate with gentleness towards my brothers and sisters within the body. Paul goes on, and he says, with patience. This recipe for unity is quite simple. It just means you have to have a completely new heart. Because humility must mark us, gentleness must mark us, and patience must mark us. Now, I don't know you personally, but of those three, 
one of them probably sticks out as particularly difficult for you. And one of them sticks out as particularly difficult for me. Thankful for my wife's smile at me right now. um, Because she knows which one. It's patience. Patience. That is a, a, a removal of angst and discomfort at the lifestyle and at the activities of other people. Long suffering with difficult people or situations. It means that I, I'm not eager to have my way accomplished. I'm content with what has been placed before me. I'm content with who is relating to me. And when the body of Christ is marked by these moral qualities, unity is the product. Humility, gentleness, and patience. Now, Paul must have known that maybe the ratio would be heavy on the patience being the struggle side because he further defines it with one more phrase. He defines patience in verse number two with one further clarifying phrase, bearing with one another in love. You say, what is patience? Well, the word bearing, I believe, is a soft way of saying putting up with. Putting up with one another, but there's a distinctive quality to how we put up with one another within the church. It's in love. It's in love. Because we have been loved as sinful enemies of God through Jesus Christ. We have experienced divine love that was never deserved. We didn't earn one, one ounce of the love that is showered upon us. Therefore, we operate as patient people with the people of God gathered in our local assemblies and outside of our local assembly in the broader church with love. We love because we have been loved. We've experienced patient, gracious, compassionate love from our Creator God. Therefore, the moral quality of unity within the body is marked by The crowning jewel, love. We can be active in the church. We can be active in serving Christ. And if it's devoid of love, it's as if someone keeps beating a symbol, Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. So with love as the crowning jewel of the list, these qualities are the basis for Christian unity within the church. If you you say, I feel disconnected to the church. I've been a part of this church family and I I do not feel as if I'm a unified part. Let me let me encourage you. Let me propose to you that it is an internal struggle first. Because your flesh is warring against unity as a diverse body of believers. Unity at Grace Church of the Valley, which we are all about. We're eager to maintain the unity that the Holy Spirit brings. We're eager to see the glue of peace at our church. We're eager for it, but we must understand it to be, first and foremost, a heart issue. It's a moral quality. It comes from inside out. The unity of the church is the result of the Holy Spirit's presence and work. That's verse 3. His regenerating work results in a new people set apart for His name and with His priorities. His glory as their chief end. Unified through the new character from new hearts. Peace is the result. It's the glue of unity. It's the expression of unity that we see most clearly. Now, all of that brings us to some very real implications. If unity as a 
a key part of our life together as a church family. If unity is not, if not internal, then we are faced with a true dilemma before us. Unity in the church is not an externally imposed pursuit. It's not superficial. It's not because we like each other. It's not because we all have the same interest outside of Christ. It's not because we, we school our children in the same schooling system. It's not because we're the same age. It's not because we have the same income and drive the same kind of cars and have the same brand of clothes. It's not even because we all live in the Central Valley. It's not because of our ethnic heritage. You see, unity within the body of Christ has nothing to do with those things. That's the miracle of the body of Christ. We're all here together, and because our hearts are marked by humility from our Christ, gentleness from our Christ, patience and love from our Christ, seen in His character, our unity must flow from the inside out. It must be the result of our new hearts. Therefore, no strategy that isn't fundamentally affecting our hearts can produce true Christian unity. You understand that? So, there is a real temptation because of our situation in America. We are not persecuted. We are not suffering in the sense of facing genuine opportunities this week to be killed or imprisoned or persecuted for our faith. Therefore, we find it quite easy within even the body of Christ to find our unity with portions of the body of Christ based upon our, our own criteria. I love the body of Christ, especially the ones that I like. Oh, I, I, am, I am unified with every Christian in my church who's also in my age bracket. I, I love the body of Christ because of any number of external situations that make me unified with them. That is not the heart of Christian unity. You see, Paul's facing... When he writes to Ephesus, he's facing a group of Gentile believers that are, are being bombarded with a temptation to be confused about what God is doing in the church. There is no longer Jew and Gentile. Now there is one people group, all under Christ. Therefore, Paul is attacking that kind of division that already existed right here in Ephesus. And it is potentially existing already right here at Grace Church of the Valley. And if not now then we can be sure the enemy will bring opportunity for it in the future. So who we are is a people of God founded upon the word of God, unified around the son of God. And what we're all about has to be unity informed by the people who are unified with one another coming from the heart. Christian unity of the church is unavoidably connected to the quality of the people and the clarity of the doctrine in the church. Number two, truth that informs that big idea we find in verses number four through six, unity at Grace Church is a moral issue. Number two, unity at Grace Church is a doctrinal issue. It's a doctrinal issue. Unity is a heart issue and unity is a gospel issue. Paul urges the believers to eager, eagerly maintain the unity of the spirit in verses one through three. In verse number four, he just begins a diatribe of truth claims 
that should inform their pursuit of that unity. Notice what happens in verse number 4. He turns the table. He's no longer urging them. He's now declaring truth. And here's what's true. There is one body at Grace Church. One local expression of the body of Christ. And there's one body of Christ. And there's one Holy Spirit in that body. Period. One Holy Spirit. There's not the Holy Spirit of the believers across the valley or across town. There's just one Spirit. Just as you were called to just one hope. There's only one hope for believers. Informed by the gospel. That belongs to your call. That's what that means. Verse number five. There's only one master. There's only one faith. There's only one gospel faith. Saving faith. There's one. There's only one baptism. That is the public identification of believers. There's only one baptism. There's only one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. That's kind of the capstone. That last definition is the umbrella, really, that goes over all of these doctrinal truth claims from the Apostle Paul. Paul moves now from what is moral in unity to what is doctrinal in its underpinning for unity. What is true that makes unity the expectation of our church? Why is it that if you've been in a church where there's been multiple splits, there have been, you know, there's three or four New Hope Baptist churches or New Hope Presbyterian churches that you know of or New Hope Community churches, because New Hope means a whole bunch of the people got upset with each other and they went and started the new one. If that's your experience, why is it that at Grace Church we could ever expect that there would be unity in the body? I mean, we have great cause for being jaded when it comes to talking about unity. I'm with you in experience of disunity within the church. So what would ever make us think that at our church we would be all about unity? Well, it would have to be that we view unity from the inside out. And secondly, it would have to be that Our unity is based around something that never changes. Something that never changes and has never changed. Something that makes us understand that if we showed up at Ephesus, we would also be unified at Ephesus. And if we showed up with brothers and sisters around the world, we would sense the unity that comes from this unmovable underpinning for unity. And here it is. It's the gospel. There is only one body of Christ. There's all kinds of confusion that come from all of the different slices of the pie that is called the body of Christ. Be informed this morning that when you walk into this church family, you make yourself accountable to this body of believers and to this leadership team. You are making yourself accountable to and are serving in the one body of Christ. And that that one body identity should make it so that we can be unified. There's only one of us. We're all a part of that body of Christ. There's only one spirit when you're looking at another Christian who you disagree with. You're looking at someone who has the Holy Spirit indwelling them. There's only one. They don't have the knockoff generic version of the holy spirit and you've got the real deal you didn't get the name brand they got the lesser one therefore your holy spirit is much better than theirs there's only one 
And Paul says these truths, this grocery list, this this lineup of truths should inform us. This should make it so that unity is possible because of doctrine. One body, one spirit, the unifying presence and power of God. One hope, the unifying expectation of our calling in Christ. We are looking forward to one hope. That is an eternity in the presence of our Christ. One Lord, unifying allegiance to a singular master. One faith, unifying devotion to Christ through faith, the gospel. One baptism, unifying confession of faith and public identity. And finally, we find one God and Father, the lowest common denominator that brings us together as one people is we recognize and submit ourselves under our Creator God and Father. And we find Paul, as he does often, unable to contain himself in verse number 6 as he launches into a description of God which is to overwhelm us. How big is your God? How how immense is his quality? Paul says, the God and Father of all of us, who is over all of us and through all of us and in all of us. This doctrinal listing from Paul, verses 4 through 6, brings home the reality that unity at Grace Church, unity within the church of Christ, wherever it is locally expressed, is and must be doctrinal. So what are the implications of that? What are the implications of our unity being based on the centrality of God here in our church family? Well, we do not exist as a church family apart from these doctrinal distinctives. And these doctrinal distinctions are the underpinnings for the practical unity among us. What is it that should be able to inform us and must inform us as we relate diversely to each other that would make us be unified as one people? It would be these doctrines. There is no Christian unity that is separate from Christian doctrine. So there is there is countless opportunities to propose a form of unity that is not Christian unity because the Christian part of Christian unity is doctrine. It's Christ. It is what Paul references in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 as as the necessity gospel message. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came and took on human flesh, lived in perfect obedience to the Father, died bearing the full weight of God's wrath, was buried and raised on the third day to eternal life. There is only one body that comes from that Christ. There's only one spirit who indwells the people of that body. There's only one hope amongst that body. There's only one Lord for that body who is that Christ. There's only one faith. That is, there's only one object of faith who is Christ. There's only one baptism. That is, there's only one public identifying feature for the body. And all of that traces itself back to the one God and Father. I think it's appropriate here to warn you that there are. There are countless 
opportunities from the enemy for us to call things Christian unity that are not Christian unity. I, I think it's appropriate. I, as a shepherd, I, I believe it's a responsibility to say that the ecumenical movement as it stands today is, in a, is a pursuit of quote-unquote Christian unity without doctrine. And as a church and as a, as a people of God, we must understand that doctrine is at the center of any Christian unity. We might be unified about any number of things with people who do not worship Christ. But when it comes to Christian unity and linking our arms for the sake of the gospel, doctrine is never separate when it comes to that unity. I tried to think of two examples that would help you. Most currently, in our culture, there has been a large-scale debate that has surrounded the Manhattan Declaration. Many of you may be familiar with the Manhattan Declaration. It was a document put together by a group of theologians, pastors, and individuals who desired to come together and to rally for the sake of unborn life, to stand opposed to abortion within our world and surely that is a cause which we hold very dear to our hearts the slaughter murderous slaughter of babies is despicable in the eyes of god and those who embrace it endorse it practice it will face the judgment of god unless he is gracious and they come to know christ so we hold that cause dear. But the Manhattan Declaration, in its very core, is an ecumenical document. Therefore, it says we stand with one faith, unified with this cause as our unifying factor. But there are the, the entire document is laced with one faith, the faith community, the Christian community. And the problem is, doctrine is not the definitive mark of who signs that declaration. So we might wholeheartedly agree with standing opposed to abortion, and we do. But we cannot say that we wholeheartedly agree as unified Christians with those who do not embrace Christian doctrine, salvation by grace, through faith, alone, in Christ alone. We cannot. It's a lie. It's not true Christian unity. It's nothing different than the original document that really led into the Manhattan Declaration in the 90s, which is evangelicals and Catholics together, the ECT movement. These are ecumenical opportunities and offerings for a quote-unquote Christian unity that does not place doctrine at the center of that unity. And Grace Church must be unified by a doctrinal Christian unity. This has had very real effect on our church family. For those of you who are new or who may not be with us this morning that will listen to this after the fact. Here in our own community, we have faced the dilemma of our Christian brothers gathering together with non-Christian brothers, non-Christians within our community and calling them brothers. Linking arms for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ when some who are linked together do not preach the gospel of Jesus Christ and we have chosen because of passages just like this to abstain from that kind of unity within our ministerial fellowship here in our community much to the offense of many but understand that 
There is no Christian unity that is not doctrinal. Therefore, we didn't have a struggle with the choice. If doctrine is set aside, Christian unity is not possible. And here within our local assembly, if we are to be unified with one another in the practical day-to-day life as a church, doctrine must inform those relationships with one another. And that really brings me to the conclusion of our study this morning. Who are we and what are we all about? Well, we're all about unity and distinctively Christian unity that's marked by the quality of the people involved and the clarity of the doctrine involved. So there, there is some, there's some very real application that I think we can make from Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. Number one, obey. Okay, number one, obey. Paul urges us to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we've been called. And the most simple application is, I must walk according to a manner that is worthy of the calling. I mean, that's, that's obedience at its very basic level. You say, well, how do I obey? Let me give you a couple of ideas about how we can obey Paul, obey the Spirit who has given us this word from Ephesians chapter 4. Number one, aggressively relate to one another as gospel people. Aggressively relate to one another as gospel people. I mean, let me branch that out a little bit. All other points of connection for us fall short of Christian unity. And, and this is key, folks. This is key to the diversity of our church being marked by supernatural unity. We have to relate to each other here at Grace Church based on gospel identifications. So how in the world could, could some of you from this side of the room actually relate to people from this side? I mean, how could that happen? I mean, let's, let's think about it. It'll have to happen because diverse people from all over this room and many who are not here with us this morning, diverse people relate to each other based upon their gospel connection point. I just don't relate well to this person. I, all they talk about is sports and, and I couldn't care less about sports. I'm drawing my second artistic piece for competition singing in an opera, and all they want to talk about is who's on the playoff game today. And I, how am I supposed to relate to that person? By the gospel, that's how. Because you have a Christ, and you're in one body, and you have the same spirit, and you serve the same Lord, and He's the dominating factor that brings you together and creates a unity that the world cannot explain. How could this group of people actually be going in one direction for the glory of God with the same purposes, exploding with evangelism to their culture. How could that happen? Because we obey and we aggressively relate to one another as gospel people first. How is it that someone who is who is from one age bracket can relate to somebody who they can't even remember being that young? How is it that young people could relate to people that they look at and say, that reminds me of my parents? I mean, how can that happen? How could you go out to dinner today with two different age groups and actually sit at a meal and enjoy unity that is marked as Christian? It'll be because we aggressively relate to one another based upon the gospel. We talk about our Christ. We talk about 
our Holy Spirit who is with us. We talk about how we're growing in grace. We talk about the work that the Lord is doing. We share our testimonies and publicly confess what Christ has done. And we learn and we grow and we're unified as Christians at Grace Church of the Valley. This is what leads us to being committed to an intergenerational ministry. You know that we have not segregated this ministry into generational classifications. First of all, it's because we're commanded not to. In Titus chapter 2, the older and the younger are to be connected relationally in the body. But secondly, it's because we believe that Christian unity overcomes those barriers. And in obedience to this text, we must pursue it. And let me encourage you to pursue it practically, even this week. In fact, your other pastor here, David, wrote you an article for that very purpose. In your bulletin today is a whole article about relating to each other, whether you like each other, whether you've got history and your business together, whether you know that that guy is a big dog and I'm a pipsqueak, whether it's old or young, whether it's rich or poor, whatever the case, we relate based upon gospel realities And Christian unity is the byproduct. Secondly, by way of obedience, aggressively apply the doctrines of the gospel to all scenarios claiming to pursue Christian unity. Aggressively apply the doctrines of the gospel to all scenarios claiming to be Christian unity. So you are offered Christian unity. Join with us as brothers in Christ, as Christians. What does that mean in our culture? We have to bring doctrine to bear on what we call Christian unity. When you're watching your television, and I hope it's minimal on religious stations, you're being offered Christian unity. Join with us, support us financially, support us by encouraging others to support us. Aggressively apply the doctrines of the gospel to each scenario claiming or offering Christian unity. It's discernment. It's saying, I, I, I cannot say this is a Christian entity that I am unified with in Christ when their doctrine does not support that claim. Doctrine both unifies and it necessarily divides, as we'll study in the future. So, obedience to this text at least includes aggressively relating to each other as gospel people. In your grace groups, in your small groups through T2 Ministries, in your informal meetings, in your time at Starbucks, in your meals after church, who you invite to your home, how you show hospitality, all of that must be because of and informed through the gospel. It breaks down every barrier. There's no longer Jew and Greek. There's no longer barbarian and Scythians. There's no longer slave and free in the church. We are a body, a local expression of a unified body of Christ. Grace Church is a gathering of the people of God, founded upon the New Testament Word of God, unified around the Son of God. Therefore, Grace Church is and must be all about Christian unity. Okay? I hope that's an encouragement to you this morning. Father, thank you so much for this text. Thank you for the clarity with which Paul speaks to us. And I thank you most importantly for the clarity with which your spirit informs us from this text. Convicting us where we have fallen short of eagerly maintaining the unity of the spirit. Exposing where 
our patience in love has turned to impatience in pride and in self-love. Exposing where our gentleness has been non-existent and where humility has been arrogance. Conform us. Use this text to continue the transformation process to make us as individuals and us as a family at Grace Church make us look like Christ, we pray. Thank you for Paul's pointed declaration of doctrine that makes unity possible and informs unity amongst diverse people. We praise you for the mystery of the church that you would bring all nations from every tribe and tongue into one people. One people for your name's sake through the blood of your son at the cross. You would bring these distant people and bring them near. You would You would adopt them as sons and daughters. What a miracle this is. I pray, we pray together, that Grace Church would be a mature expression of that unity that you designed in your church. We have have many opportunities to rest on other forms of unity here at Grace Church. Old relationships, family connections, job-related connections, interest, common age groups, common social classes. We have boundless opportunities to relate superficially and to segregate superficially. Father, I pray, I pray that you would do something that would show your power here in unifying us as a people together. May we aggressively pursue it. May we apply doctrine so that our unity is growing deeper and deeper and more sure upon the gospel of Jesus Christ that has rescued us from our sin and made us your people together. We confess our amazement again at being your people, at being founded upon your word and unified around your son. This is grace from you. We ask that you would continue to nurture and develop us that we might be unified as a quality, as a characteristic, as a habit at Grace Church. Not so that others might notice our unity, but so that others might notice the Christ who is at the center of our unity. For the glory of your name for eternity, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.